Uh, consider this question. Uh, if you could live at any time in history, uh, just for one year, one month, uh, even uh, just a week to get a glimpse, uh, what time period uh, would it be? When in history, uh, what part of the world would you want to live? Uh, some of us might be thinking, I would just go back a week, better yet a month, uh, but it would be somewhere warm. Other, others of us might be weighing out particular historical figures. Um, we would want to see their lives uh, in real time, uh, what, what their life looked like from day uh, to day. We might think about certain events that we would want to witness uh, firsthand. Well, whatever your conclusion, I am quite confident that not a single one of us, if there is, let me know after worship, not a single one of us would choose the place or the time of the biblical figure uh, of Daniel, Daniel's day. Sixth century B.C., exile in Babylon. But that's where God had him. And sometimes the people of God find themselves in really rocky places, places where uh, powerful empires are at war, uh, where heavy, heavy suffering may be a real possibility, and, and where perseverance is truly needed. And we, we see those themes as we continue in the eighth chapter of Daniel. We've already heard this second vision uh, described and read uh, in the Old Testament reading of a ram with two horns, uh, this goat with a conspicuous horn which is crushed, out of which four other horns emerge, and from one of those four, a little horn emerges. And so we press into and continue in uh, God's Word, Daniel 8, picking up at verse 15, and see if there is more clarity for us. Daniel 8, verse 15. When I, Daniel, had seen the vision, I sought to understand it. And behold, there stood before me one having the appearance of a man, and I heard a man's voice between the banks of the Ulai, and it called, Gabriel, make this man understand the vision. So he came near where I stood, and when he came, I was frightened and fell on my face. But he said to me, Understand, O son of man, that the vision is for the time of the end. And when he had spoken to me, I fell into a deep sleep with my face to the ground. But he touched me and made me stand up. He said, Behold, I will make known to you what shall be at the latter end of the indignation, for it refers to the appointed time of the end. As for the ram that you saw with the two horns, these are the kings of Media and Persia. And the goat is the king of Greece. And the great horn between his eyes is the first king. As for the horn that was broken, in place of which four others arose, four kingdoms shall arise from his nation, but not with his power. And at the latter end of their kingdom, when the transgressors have reached their limit, a king of bold face, one who understands riddles, shall arise. His power shall be great, but not by his own power. And he shall cause fearful destruction and shall succeed in what he does and destroy mighty men and the people who are the saints. By his cunning, he shall make deceit prosper under his hand. And in his own mind, he shall become great. Without warning, he shall destroy many. And he shall even rise up against the prince of princes, and he shall be broken, but by no human hand. 
The vision of the evenings and the mornings that has been told is true, but seal up the vision, for it refers to many days from now. And I, Daniel, was overcome and lay sick for some days. Then I rose and went about the king's business, but I was appalled by the vision and did not understand it. Uh, There is a part of us that might be tempted or inclined to follow uh, Daniel's words. I was appalled by the vision and did not understand it with, and neither do we. Uh, One minister, in fact, called Daniel 8 a preacher's nightmare. How are we to understand these things? Here is Daniel, gifted by God to see visions, uh, to understand dreams, How are we to understand it? But there is something we have that Daniel did not have, and that is for Daniel, the events revealed in these visions were, for him, future events. But for us, they are uh, the past. And while hindsight is not always 2020, uh, we have millennia, as Elder Scott mentioned, millennia of church history that has contributed to helping understand these things. And I think here is a, a, a... timely point to reinforce the importance for us as a congregation of being a people committed to the exposition of the Word of God. That is, to preach and to read the Bible chapter by chapter, book by book. Not to say that there isn't a place for topical studies. Surely there is. But if one preaches or reads the Bible merely topically or kind of overly selective, Do you know when you would end up getting to Daniel chapter 8? I'll answer that. Never. Never. You've probably never heard someone say, wow, I had this this wonderful devotional time this morning in Daniel chapter 8. And that's not to make light of that. Perhaps uh, God would work in that way. But it's not that kind of chapter that has those memory verses that we would cling, cling to. There's an obscurity about it. It's very difficult. And yet Daniel 8 and the whole of Daniel consists of a very relevant period in the history of God's people. It is exile. And it gives a, and provides a very important contribution to the larger narrative and story of God's great works in history and His preserving a people for Himself. And it consists of significant themes. And the first theme I want to highlight here in this chapter is the theme of power. Power. We see that word used numerous times through the chapter. The word is used of the ram in verse 4 that no one could rescue from his power. It's used in verse 6 of the goat who carries out his powerful wrath against the ram. So this is a story, among other things, about power struggles, earthly powers warring with each other and its effect upon the saints of God, the church of Christ the church of the Lord. And now, in a way, the the focus, the scope narrows just a bit from chapter 7 now into chapter 8. From that first vision uh, during King Belshazzar's first year in chapter 7, where we read about uh, this vision Daniel has of these four beasts arising up out of the sea. They uh, rise in succession, uh, one after the other, becoming the dominant empire in the ancient Near East. Well, here, two years later, chapter 8, verse 1, we're told it's the third year of King Belshazzar, and Daniel has a second vision. 
It's not of four beasts, it's only of two. And they're not referred to as beasts, though these two are among likely uh, those four. They're not slimy beasts coming up out of the sea. It's a ram and a goat. Uh, There's a more humane, noble picture uh, taking place. So we dive into the weeds just for a brief time to sort out and understand this vision. A helpful starting point is verse 20, where we are told what the ram and the goat are in terms of their identity. Verse 20, As for the ram that you saw with the two horns, these are the kings of Media, the Medes, and Persia. And the goat is the king of Greece. This story, the vision is told in a kind of dramatic uh, fashion. You see in verse 3 and 4, the ram has two horns, horns being a symbol of power for fighting both offensively and defensively. One is higher than the other. The higher or greater one is probably referring to Persia, uh, the stronger empire, and the shorter one, the Medes, Media. But its power is displayed as it moves, quote, westward, northward, southward. It's pressing out its dominance, the Medes and the Persians. Then we're told in verse 5, a male goat, the Greeks, comes swiftly, doesn't even touch the ground. He comes with this immediacy, swiftly, with power. And he has this conspicuous horn between his eyes, which we're told in verse 21 is the first king among the Greeks likely referring here to Alexander the Great. He came, he cast down the ram, the Medes and Persians, trampling him underfoot. Alexander, in the 330s B.C., becomes one of the central figures in this vision. His power is great. He extends his reign as far as India in his conquest of the world. But what happens in verse 8? When he became strong the great horn was broken. And instead, four horns emerge in its place. These four horns likely represent four generals that take over power uh, from Alexander or pick up power following Alexander the Great and ultimately represent four kingdoms that would emerge. Verse 9, And out of one of them came a little horn, which grew exceedingly great. There's near unanimity throughout church history that this figure, the little horn, is Antiochus Epiphanes, mentioned last week in the 160s to 170 B.C. He is that king of bold face in verse 23. So these two figures, Alexander the Great and Antiochus Epiphanes, are central in this vision. Unlike Alexander, with this large conspicuous horn, representing his power and his world dominance, Antiochus' horn is described as little, but he's full of deceit, cunning, verse 25. He is the one in the vision who sets himself up against the Lord. He's the one referred to as bringing suffering to the saints. Verse 10, he grew great even to the host of heaven, throwing down some of the host and stars, trampling them underfoot, profaning the temple, the sanctuary, verse 11, ending Jewish sacrifice, causing suffering to the saints, verse 24. And history tells us this all began with his assassination of the high priest 
Onias, 170 B.C. Archaeology, history tells us Antiochus burned copies of the Scriptures, executed thousands of Jews, and even had coins made with the phrase Theos Epiphanes, God manifest, referring to himself. With that picture and snapshot of kingdoms and evil, deceptive kings, important points and questions uh, perhaps surface. We know the Bible is not a history book, but it is full of history. And as we're looking into the past, we're reminded not only is the story of the people of God directly related to what is happening in the world, as we see here, in the midst of what is happening, whether it's in the midst of the Persians, the Greeks, the Romans, or today we heard regarding Ukraine or our own nation. But the story of his people cuts right through the middle of world history. Right through the middle. The story of the church in the Old and New Testament is the central story. It's the main headline, the central story in world history. It's what is to give shape to our thinking about history and God's work in it. And Daniel's faith in the midst of this, in the midst of evil, in the midst of suffering, seemingly chaos and brutality, mattered. His faith and devotion to the Lord mattered. And your faith in your context, in your family, in your generation, amidst the evils of the world, matters. It matters to our Lord. Surely, as Daniel sees this vision, he is alarmed. He's frightened. Perhaps confused. But maybe there are aspects of the vision that really served as food for thought for him. Maybe the sudden failure of that conspicuous horn of Alexander uh, the Great gave Daniel food for thought. As Alexander is described in verse 8 as the goat becoming exceedingly great, but when he was strong, the great horn was broken. Alexander's career, beginning around 336 B.C. at the age of 20, in his younger years, um, a student of Aristotle, would lead to 12 or so years of hard-fought battles, widespread military campaigns, major efforts, and huge success. He died in his early 30s. His whole strength had been poured into gaining what he himself became too weak to actually hold. There's a lesson there. His fall was simply due to the over-exhausting expenditure of his own energy. It wasn't the fault or imperfection of his effort. It was the opposite. It was his total commitment and sheer brilliance to the point that he expended everything. Ron Wallace, a commentator, says this, How often it happens in human history that men and women put everything into some life achievement. The end is good. The effort is full of nobility. The best of their skill and resources are freely given and freely expended. It's magnificent, and they attain exactly the goal they set themselves, and even more. But at the moment of attainment, everything collapses simply because they have tried too well, given themselves too wholeheartedly. 
the power to enjoy the achievement when it came has been sacrificed by the colossal expenditure to get there. This is applicable. This can happen in our lives. In the pursuit of something, academics, reputation, career, social life, we can put so much into something that when we actually achieve it, that status, that job, that fortune, we can find that in our effort to get there, we've actually done great damage as we look back. Could be to home, could be to marriage, could be to health. And just like that great horn, we snap. It snaps. The person breaks themselves. They're finished. This is perhaps why Paul says in that wonderful chapter on God's restoring and redemptive work, Romans 8, verse 37, says, in all these things, no, in all these things, we are more than conquerors through Him who loved us. Have you thought about those words before? More than conquerors. What more is there than to conquer, to have victory? We're more than that. Well, what more is there? There's the victor. There's the conqueror. Then there's the victor who can actually enjoy and rest in the victory. Not only do we have victory through our Lord Jesus Christ, but everlasting rest in the presence of Jesus Christ to be able to enjoy Him and what He has done on our behalf. We are more than conquerors. In the midst of the fight or battle for power, we hear Jesus' words to His disciples in the Beatitudes. Blessed are the powerful, for they inherit the earth. No. Blessed are the meek. Blessed are the meek, for they shall inherit the earth. We see this in Daniel. We see this most clearly in our Lord Jesus Christ. The meek are not the weak or the passive or the complacent. The meek are the wise. They know not to assert themselves over others for their own agenda, their own ambitions, but to trust and yield to the Lord. For He, the Lord, in His time, in His way, will deliver them a glorious inheritance. Another theme we see here is the presence of suffering in the life of the saints. The little horn, Antiochus, is described in verse 9 as trampling some of the hosts, the stars of heaven, likely language referring uh, to the saints, overthrowing the sanctuary, verse 11, seeking to force God's people uh, to forsake God's laws and ways. And in verse 24, he's described as destroying mighty men and the people who are the saints. Every Christian, every saint in every generation is ordained by God to suffer to one degree or another. Peter's words in, in 1 Peter 1 speak to all Christians in all ages, where he says, In this you rejoice, though now for a little while, if necessary, you've been grieved by various trials, that the tested genuineness of your faith more precious than gold, tested by fire, may be found to result in praise in the day of Christ Jesus. We heard that this morning in the testimony from the, the Christian woman in Ukraine. 
emphasizing that in the darkest times, that is when the Lord is most powerfully working in our lives. She said it's, it sounds like a cliche, but it is true. It is true, she said. The historian Mark Knoll says at the Nicene Council in the 4th century, of the 318 or so delegates attending, he said fewer than 12 had not lost an eye, hand, or had a limp lamed by persecution for their Christian faith. One historian called the council uh, an army of martyrs. But the Lord brings good and beauty out of suffering. Here's Daniel. He's favored by God, gifted by God, fearless in a way for God. But what are we told of him? Last verse of chapter 7, my thoughts greatly alarmed me. End of chapter 8, I, Daniel, was overcome and lay sick for some days, appalled by this vision. This is why Daniel 8 is important, why the whole of Daniel is important, because his story is your story. His story is our story. His exile is our exile. Every time we gather as God's people, we sing praise unto God, we confess our sins, we sit under uh, the Word, we're entering into God's grand narrative of creation and redemption, including exile, including the dark places of exile, to be shaped and to be reshaped, to know Him who entered our exile on our behalf, our suffering, our doubts and confusion, our fears, who ultimately entered the exile of the cross. Uh, for us. We sing that hymn, I love to tell the story. It will be my theme in glory. To tell the old, old story of Jesus and His love. I love to tell the story for those who know it best seem hungering and thirsting to hear it like the rest. And when in scenes of glory I sing the new, new song, it will be the old, old story that I have loved so long. There may be suffering, yet there is to be gladness and joy in every season, in any season. The Christian author Sam Storms said, Joy is not the absence of suffering, it is the presence of God. And it's God's presence that Daniel has known and sought to cultivate as he perseveres through this season, through exile. And like Daniel, we're called to persevere as sojourners. And that's the final theme here. Like suffering, perseverance is temporary. In fact, Daniel was told in verse 13, how long is the vision concerning this transgression and the trampling of the sanctuary? A particular episode here in exile. And it was said, 2,300 evenings and mornings, period of six or so years, likely under Antiochus's tyrannical uh, reign. But part of the point there is that God limits the powers uh, of the earth and earthly rulers. God has limited and numbered the days of exile. He's numbered our days as well. He's numbered the days until the consummation of all things. But in exile, Daniel's whole orientation, his whole focus reflects 
that orientation of our Lord Jesus Christ. Remember back in chapter 6, Daniel's heart and face was toward Jerusalem, the city of our Lord. Back in chapter 6, remember, he was praying three times a day on his knees. That was his practice. His hope and devotion in the Lord. The Lord who would restore His temple, gather His people again. Daniel didn't choose to live during a hard time in the history of God's redemptive story. We don't choose the time in which we live. But he was determined where his aim in life was going to be. His entire orientation. He was going to persevere. He was going to be faithful. Uh, some of us, many of us, may be aware of, of what's been called a, just recently, recently in the last couple of weeks, a, weeks, a revival uh, taking place at Asbury University in uh, Wilmore, Kentucky. Uh, began a couple weeks ago on February 8th after a number of, of students stayed uh, after a scheduled chapel. More and more began gathering. Uh, they stayed through that first night. Day two, day three, day and night, people gathering more and more. Uh, real heartfelt confession of sin, singing hymns and praises, uh, messages being given, uh, reports of conversions, real contrition, many, many young people participating. Word began to get out. Uh, dozens of other institutions began making their way to, to participate. Uh, it's the kind of revival that it and other places have seen throughout evangelicalism uh, in America. And on the one hand, you give praise. Any time the Lord works in these sort of really powerful, poignant ways, people gathering to give praise unto God and to continue in, in prayer, uh, seeking His face, certainly we give praise for this. His reviving, His saving, His restoring, strengthening work. Revivals. Uh, great awakenings, reform kinds of movements. At the same time, I think it's worth saying revival is not the singular goal. Christ-likeness is. Christ-likeness is. Revival may be the result at times of godliness, God's Holy Spirit being worked out, but it's not a necessity to godliness. It's not even the norm for growth in godliness. Sowing to the Spirit, faithfulness to God, using the means of grace, like Daniel in exile. Doing those things, we can know revival and reform in our hearts daily. Revival is a blessing, but it is perseverance by God's power and by God's grace that brings us to the end. And we have these words from our confession on the perseverance of the saints. And I'll close with them. They whom God has accepted in His beloved, effectually called and sanctified by His Spirit, can neither totally nor finally fall away from the state of grace, but shall certainly persevere to the end and be eternally saved. This perseverance of the saints depends not upon their own free will, but upon the immutability of the decree of election, flowing from the free and unchangeable love of God the Father, upon the efficacy, 
the merit and intercession of Jesus Christ, the abiding of the Spirit and of the seed of God uh, within us. Let's pray. Oh Lord, how we uh, praise You for all parts of Your holy and precious Word. We pray, O oh Lord, that You would continue to be at work within our hearts. May Your Holy Spirit be poured out powerfully, Lord. Help us by Your mercy to be faithful to You, to walk after Your commandments. Lord, to live repentant lives before You. We pray, O oh Lord, that You would continue to bind us together. Help us, Lord, to live in light of the story of Your Word. This great and grand narrative of Your creation and of Your restoration of all things. We praise You, Lord, for the saving grace and restoration that You have worked in us. Continue to grow us up in Jesus Christ, O Lord, for the glory of Your name. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.